The following audio is from Grace Fellowship of Westerville. More information about the church is available at www.gracefcwesterville.org. Well, back in John chapter 9, last week we touched on verse 1. We talked about Jesus seeing the blind man. And in verses 2 and 3 we read, And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that the man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. So so this blind beggar's life up to this point was completely devoid of sight. The works of God would be manifest in him, but throughout his entire life, he's been stumbling around blind, begging with no means to get through life other than the hopeful care and charity of some people dropping a few coins into his, uh, into his bowl. This idea, how often, however, meets with some struggle and some frustration with a lot of people and even Christians. We've almost become to the point where salvation becomes almost an entitlement, that I'm entitled to God's blessings on my life. C.S. Lewis put it this way in his book, The Problem of Pain. He said, if God were good, he would wish to make his creatures perfectly happy. And if, we're, and if God were almighty, he would be able to do what he wished. But the creatures are not happy. Therefore, God lacks either goodness or power or both. And that is really the concept that happens in many people's lives. When things aren't going right we can get frustrated with God. And we can wonder what exactly he's doing in us. So what is the answer? Seasoned Christians understand the principle behind suffering, but seldom power through when the suffering comes. So we must understand some key truths about this whole area of suffering. And I want to, first of all, make us all realize that everyone suffers. Everyone has suffering at some point in their lives. At some time or other, every human being must experience suffering. I mean, a person causes pain just by being born. Many people live to inflict pain. Most suffer pain, and eventually everyone dies. Alphaz spoke truthfully to Job when he said in Job chapter 5, verses 6 and 7, For affliction does not come from the dust, nor does trouble sprout from the ground. But as man is born to trouble, as the sparks fly upward. Just like when you light a fire and the sparks go up, man is born to trouble. And because of sin, man is conceived in pain, and his life is a continual fight against the ravages of a sin-cursed world. Good men suffer as the bad. Accidents happen to any and all people. But to the child of God, sufferings have weight and they have purpose. What do we say from time to time? We, we say that when we get into situations, we get there for one of three reasons, right? Either we put ourselves there by some dumb decision or Satan puts us there or God puts us there. But all three come through the permissive will of God. The unsaved man suffers with no purpose unless God is using it to draw him to himself. And the Christian can rely on his Savior for not only comfort, but for purpose. Job found that out in a very big way. But let me address, first of all here, some false assumptions that these disciples made. We're told by...
by John that as Jesus passed by the gate of the temple, having, having placed him out of reach of those who sought to stone him, he saw a man blind from birth. Now, sometimes when I'm working on these messages, I kind of get fixated on something, and it just, I can't get my mind off it. So on Friday, I was the only one in the building. There wasn't a soul here. So I, I put the, my notes aside, and I get up, and I walk to the door of my office, and I shut my eyes, and I began a journey through this whole building without opening my eyes. I made it out the door, down the steps, took a right into the activity or fellowship hall upstairs where the Sunday school classes met. You know, you're really good until you get into a wide open space. But I somehow made it all the way down to the end, made my walk through the walk around, came into the activity center back here, and here's this wide open space. The last time I looked, there was nothing in there. But what if somebody put something there? So I'm like, I think it took me 20 minutes to cross that, that, the hall back here. I get into the kitchen, and that was easy because I felt the counter, and I could just slide down the counter to the other door, and I made it right through this back door here, made it along that wall. By the way, when you're touching the walls the whole way, the walls are kind of dirty. My hands are all dirty. This thing. I get into the hall here. I walked down by the cafeteria. I had to make sure I could, or the cafe. I had to make sure I could find it in case something really happened. I got to find the cafe. And then I got into this atrium back here, and I got lost. I mean, literally. I know I'm thinking pillars here, pillows here, member service here, door there. But for some reason, I couldn't find my way. And I was so tempted to peek. But I thought, I can't do that. So I finally found the stairs made it up the stairs, came into the balcony all the way across the top, back down into the office complex upstairs. I can't tell you how long it took me. But then it struck me. I was traversing this whole building that I had been in for 30 years. I know where every little thing is in this building. So even though I stumbled, even though it took me a while, and I bumped into things, I'll confess, I was going by memory. I was going by what I remember. Now imagine bringing a visitor in who's never set foot in this building, blindfolding them and say, make it through the building. They have no mental image. They have no picture. They've never seen here. They don't know sanctuary. They don't know atrium. They don't know fellowship hall. They don't know balcony. They don't know office. They're probably going to go to a point and sit down and cry because there's nowhere to go. This blind man was blind from birth. He never was given any images whatsoever to go on. So if someone said, oh, oh, there's a bird flying over, what's a bird? Well, it has wings. And a, what's a wing? Well, they flap up and that what's flat. I mean, absolutely, utterly, completely devoid of any knowledge. And this is the man that Jesus brings to the forefront, and he's going to make the recognition and the similarity to a person blind in spiritual things. When someone does not know the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior, they are utterly and completely spiritually blind. That's this man. That's this man. This man had begged at the temple gate for many years. In fact, the disciples knew him. It, it could have been that Jesus had even passed by him before. But now they pose a philosophical question. Immediately, 
this lamb is born. Now, isn't that always the way we think sometimes? When somebody is in trouble, what do they do? You know, it just kind of it's just kind of the way we think. And so they bring this philosophical question to Jesus, and they said, "Who sinned, this man or his parents?" But Jesus said, "Nah, nobody sinned. This blindness is so the Son of Man works can be displayed in his life." So the question they asked was the age-old question of the problem of pain and the question that we've been asking. However, their question reveals two basic yet erroneous assumptions. In the first place, the question reveals the pagan assumption that sin in this life is a result of sins committed in a past life. Reincarnation was very popular in the first century, and in fact, many Jews believe in it as well. The second erroneous assumption made by the disciples was that the suffering of the blind man had been caused by his parents. Now, this one is a little bit easier to believe, because in Exodus chapter 20 and verse 5, we read, God says, you shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquities of the fathers on the children of the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. So that concept is possible. But in our story, Jesus replied that the blind man had been born blind neither because of his sins or the sins of his parents, but rather so that the glory of God might be revealed in him. This means, and let's be frank, that God had allowed this man to be born blind, to stumble around, to beg for his very existence, to endure pain and suffering so that at this particular moment in his earthly life, Jesus could be glorified by a miracle. Having said that, Jesus then goes through the healing process and heals him with the, with the mud, the clay. So, so here's our first great, great lesson from the story. There is no pat answer to the question of human suffering. There are answers, of course, and we're going to see them with our story here, but there are no pat answers. Consequently, we cannot say, as some do, that it is the right of every believer to be healthy. Or that suffering is always the result of personal sin. In some cases, suffering is corrective. It is given to get us back on the path God has chosen for us. In other cases, it's constructive. It is given to build character, and in still other cases, as with our story, it is given solely that God might be receive the glory. But in all these cases, the goal is the glory of God. So we must not make the mistake of imagining that if someone suffers some great catastrophe, it is because God has struck him or her down because of some sin. These people imagine God to be a stern judge who's just looking for one mistake, and down comes the hammer. I mean, this is a scandal against God himself, and all you have to do is go back to the story we had a few weeks ago about the adulterous woman. Guilty on every case, yet Jesus said to her, I don't condemn you. God is a God of mercy, and we live in the age of grace. The time of judgment and punishment is coming, but today, behold, now is the day of salvation. 
Today is the day that God is looking to save souls. So let's let's just take a few minutes and let's look at God's purpose in suffering. Number one, corrective suffering. Corrective suffering. That is, God sends pain in order to get us back on track. When you punish your children, it's not because you hate them or that you don't care about them. You understand that a little pain now heads off a bigger pain later on. Correction is necessary for a child's learning. He must learn that he is not free to do whatever he wants. More importantly, by learning to obey his parents, he understands how to obey God. So the child is taught through corrective suffering that sin is wrong, obedience is the only way, and that's exactly what the scriptures are teaching us in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 through 7 and 11. Listen, it says, And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom the father does not discipline? Verse 11. For the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Corrective suffering is one of the greatest blessings of love. To be chastised, to be put back on track, is the most wonderful thing to happen when you realize it's done in love. So the first thing we should do when we're confronted with suffering is to ask God whether or not it is intended for our correction. Then act accordingly. Number two, constructive suffering. Constructive suffering. God sends the believer some sufferings that are constructive. That is, they are intended to whittle away that which is unusable by God. The great artist, Benevenuto Cellini, tells us in his autobiography how he felt as he stood before a block of marble that had been brought to Florence for him to carve into a great statue. Several chapters are devoted to the design, the creation of the work in which he sta- which stands today as one of the great monuments in that town. Between the rough, hewn block of marble and the finished statue that he had envisioned stood all the marble that was not necessary and had to be removed. And with every stroke of the hammer, with every stroke of the chisel, carefully, precisely removing everything that stood in the way of that great statue. Can I tell you that Christ chisels away our cover until the Christ-likeness he desires is in full view of his glory? Let me make it this, tell you this way. God will remove from our lives what is hiding his image from shining through. Not your image, not your great deeds, not your success, not your abilities. God will remove from our lives what is hiding his image from shining through. And when the child of God is surrendered and endures the corrective suffering and the constructive suffering, they stand wide open to the world, to the world. 
as a glorious image of the Son of God. God's goal is that the world might see Jesus in you. And so don't be upset when the chisel hits, when the hammer swings, because the intended purpose is to make you into the image of Jesus Christ, that they might see your, your like, his likeness. Third, I couldn't think of a clever word to say, so I just call it glory suffering. Glory suffering. As in the case of the blind man who was born blind. You know, some suffering is merely that the grace of God might be revealed in the life of the Christian. Job was such a person. Lazarus was another. Beyond a doubt, both of these men were sinners. Both had, I'm sure, suffered corrective and constructive suffering many times in their lives. However, in the cases recorded for us, Job and Lazarus, now, and now the blind man, these sufferings were fully intended to bring glory to God. So, would God Almighty permit a man to be stripped of his family and all his possessions, to be struck with such illness that he would find himself sitting in the ashes, bemoaning that he had ever been born, just so God himself might be vindicated? Would God permit a man to be struck with blindness for the better part of his life so that in God's time he might become the object of a miracle performed by the Lord Jesus Christ? Would God permit a child of his to die, bringing not only suffering upon himself but also on his sisters, just so God could be glorified? Well, in light of the word of God, we must answer not only that God would do such things, but that he has done them and indeed continues to do them in order that he might bring victory for himself and all believers in this great battle against the powers of good and evil in this world. Moreover, those who know God well know that God is both perfect and loving and he does all things well. But let's, let's not miss maybe the most significant part of this blind man's situation. What did verse 3 say again? But that the works of God might be displayed in him. Do you understand that God's, God's working in you is not so his works, his works, or excuse me, God is working you so that his works, his effort and plan, the plan of the creator of the universe might be on display in you. Meditate on that for a while. No matter what you go through, no matter how life treats you, no matter how good or how bad it gets, when you are completely sold out to Christ, His works are on display in you. And that, my friends, is the peace that passes all understanding. That's the kind of peace we can't get our hands around. To think that I could suffer and still bring glory to God is hard for me to, to comprehend, especially when I'm the cause of my suffering. Because even though you get yourself in that position, God has allowed it, and he will work through it. He will work you through it. So when suffering comes, we must check out the possibilities. One, is it corrective, sent by God to return us to the proper path? Two, is it constructive, 
If so, we should ask him to use it to make us more like Jesus Christ. And three, is it for his glory? If so, we must ask God to keep us faithful so that others might see Christ in us and be the glory he intended us to be. And then the final point, number four, suffering is strength. Suffering is strength. 2 Corinthians 12.10 For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then am I strong. You see, it's in our weakness that Christ is strong. When we get to that point where we say, I I can't do it anymore. I don't know the future. I'm scared. God, take over. And the strength of that spirit jumps in and begins to guide your life. That's where the great strength is. Don't ever forget this. Godly suffering always comes with God's strength. If God brings you to it, he will always bring you through it. Don't ever forget that. And in the midst of suffering, God's strength is available. It is our helplessness where he makes himself real. That's why Paul could say that he wanted to know the fellowship of his suffering. Philippians 1, 29 For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. You see, for the early disciples, to suffer for Christ was an incredible thing. It was awesome. In fact, Acts chapter 5, verse 41 says, Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for his name. They, They were excited when they were beaten and battered, and thrown in jail. They were excited because they were suffering for Christ. What could be a greater privilege? Philippians 3.10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. The problem with us today is we have made Christianity into a very self-serving religion. I'm I'm saved. I can come to God. God, meet my needs. And that's where we leave it. But the child of God who empties himself to the will of God, who allows the Holy Spirit to take over, that life says, Jesus, do with me whatever you choose. Whatever you choose. You want to exalt me? Praise God. If you want to take me down, praise God. If you want to make me suffer, praise God. And Paul outlined those things very clearly when he talked about being shipwrecked three times, being bitten by poisonous snakes, being cast lost at sea, being whipped between an inch of his life. And he counted it all worthy for the glory of God. We were created for his glory. It's not about me. And Paul is saying that if I can suffer and become more like Christ to bring him glory, bring it on. What could be better? And then 1 Peter 2.21, For to this 
you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. His example may be suffering, but therein is the untold victory. Therein is where Christ can be glorified. And what he is looking for is people who will identify with him every day of their lives in the good things and in the bad things. To suffer a lot or suffer nothing. When God can call on you freely to witness, when God can call on you to have much, when God can call on you to suffer loss, when God can call on you to suffer, then he has all of you. And in your life, God will be glorified beyond measure. In your life, the works of God will be displayed. The great lesson to us today, this blind beggar, are we willing to give him everything in order to be used by him to display his love and mercy? Father, we we thank you this morning for this incredible story of this blind beggar, blind from birth, not blind because of an accident later on, not blind because of a disease, not blind because of any other reason, but that you sought to use him to display your mercy before the world, like a fine painting for all the world to see. Heavenly Father, I just pray that you would move in the hearts of every one of us. As we saw these five identified in baptism by going into the water and coming out before everyone here saying, I am God's child. I have accepted his death on the cross as payment for my sins. If there's someone here this morning who needs to do that, In this brief moment, Lord, while we just pray and we all search our hearts for just a few moments of quiet time, I would invite you to just come to the front, kneel at this altar, and give your heart to Christ. Father, we thank you again for this amazing service, for the wonderful baptism, the wonderful music, your word, and now we get to go fellowship as a body around the table at the picnic. Bless us, Lord. Encourage us and strengthen us. But most of all, may we bring glory to you in Christ's precious name.